Osiris Production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Welcome, friends, to the latest edition of Dead to Me. Regular listeners know that a major theme of our show is the different experiences people have in becoming Grateful Dead fans. But with so much music and lore to sift through, figuring out where to start can be daunting. The good news is that these days there are a lot more tools to dig the dead. In just a minute, Ed and I will talk about how the internet has not only made it easier to listen, but also offers context for appreciation, which is important given the sheer amount of material out there. And I am beyond psyched about our special guest, Neil Casal, the guitarist for the Chris Robinson Brotherhood and Circles Around the Sun, among many other projects. His thoughtful reflections prove that no matter where technology takes us, loving this band is as much about heart and soul as it is ones and zeros. So come along as we learn how to dead. Eduardo, let's do this. I like being ahead in the internet era, and maybe it's the last good thing about the internet. <laughs> I know you and I grew up with cassettes, which had their charms. Maybe they were more cherished just because there were fewer options before the internet. So the tapes that we had, we really spent time with. But overall, I like being a fan in the present. I wish I had seen the band live, but I also like not feeling any pressure to go to a show. <laughs> You know, maybe to me, the massively mobile psychedelic cults are best experienced from a safe distance. (laughs) And as lame as it's gotten, the Internet actually makes things so much more efficient. I know efficiency isn't something we would normally ascribe to the dead. So I'm wondering, like, how did they come to be so accessible online? Well, it has to be partly uh, an extension of their kind of radical philosophy of access to music and that idea that when they were done with it, they were really done with it and it belonged to someone else. Mm -hmm. But certainly the argument that like every new technology that it's just a matter of time until it's used for porn. (laughs) I feel like for every new technology, it's just a matter of time until it's used for the dead. Oh my God, that's Um, so true. I remember before you could stream audio anywhere, being able to find sites that just collected um, not entire dead shows because they didn't have the bandwidth to support that, but on a dial-up streaming, you know, 40 minutes of some random show that was probably mislabeled and it was an awful audience <laughs> recording, but you did it on, on tinny computer speakers. Do you think this is because some of the early Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and tech geniuses were into the band? Supposedly Steve Jobs was a fan, but there were a lot of others too. Yeah, and it's not a coincidence that, you know, Barlow ends up working with the Electronic Freedom Foundation mm-hmm. and that the Internet Archive, which is one of those sites that is just committed to the concept of publicly available knowledge, is the host of essentially the largest Grateful Dead collection ever amassed. That's right. And then there's the Grateful Dead Archive, which is housed at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And that's an official academic repository, which is kind of cool considering that its subject were a bunch of dropout freaks, essentially. Yeah, you know, those intersections of like the Grateful Dead and scholarliness or or the Grateful Dead and these broad movements that transform society. It's really cool for people who don't come to the dead from like a kind of Americana or folk tradition background to be able to easily find annotated lyrics online. It's awesome. And read through listserv discussions about what a reference might entail. In terms of music, a lot of what you find online are the live shows just simply because the band recorded so many concerts. I mean, the studio albums have always been around, but that only 
captures one facet and not everyone's going to find their seat on the bus that way. Yeah. I know I didn't, which is why I'm so glad that there are sites that make it easier to sift through the live stuff. One app that I use a ton is called Relisten. It's built on the Internet Archive mm-hmm. and it makes it so much easier to search and sort by year, location, song title, a few other criteria. It's really great if you want to trace the evolution of a song and performance and see where it might have fallen out of a set list and where it may have come back. Uh, Relisten has a lot more bands than just the dead, but they're definitely the main attraction for me. I also use this site called Heady Version, which adds a crowdsourced component. You can see what users think is the best China Cat Sunflower mm-hmm. or Ramble on Rose or whatever you're into. And the comments are the chillest in the entire internet, which I'm just going to say is fucking refreshing. (laughs) Anyway, I'm sure our listeners have tips on other sites or apps, and we invite you to let us know your favorites or tell us why you love any of the ones that I just mentioned. And it can even be personal collections. We're curious, so let us know. But I want to start with you, Ed. Tell me, what is your preferred Grateful Dead Stargate? Well, I absolutely use Relisten a lot. And while I think, you know, you and I are, we're proficient enough in the dead to, to be able to get a lot out of it. I would say that for people who are considering taking the plunge and really want to know how to dead, I think, um, I think you're better off with something um, more like the heady version option, or even just, mm-hmm. even just reaching out to us on Facebook, you know, come ask us questions. Um, there is an entire network of people who sort of curate. And what I like about that is that, you know, once a week, I probably end up trading texts with old friends. Friends or, yeah. or family or whoever. Yep. And it's it's almost like we're recreating the old timey days of like tape trading where it's just someone saying, Hey, I stumbled across this fantastic, you know, nineteen eighty one show that I've never heard anyone talk about. You should go check it out. It's funny because I've never been into sports and politics has become such a cesspool that I'm really happy to have the Grateful Dead as some kind of social currency. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The cool thing about it playing out on the internet is that it's more democratic, right? You don't have to sure you don't have to like pay the the toll to get into like the cool person's circle but you might have to pay the troll toll yeah (laughs) right (laughs) i feel like if these sites and apps had existed when i was in high school i might have been better able to zero in on what i liked and maybe develop some appreciation for the stuff that initially put me off i guess i just didn't know the right tape trader back then but apparently my generation had a lot of them and i'm willing to bet that some of that comes down to consumer technology. Mm-hmm. You had better quality and relatively more affordable portable tape recorders, both analog and digital. And all of that coincides with the dead surge in popularity in the 80s and 90s. Touch of Grey was all over MTV and radio, and there was the Without a Net album and one from The Vault. Uh, that's something our executive producer, Kevin, is psyched to talk about more in an upcoming episode. But anyway, I also think it helps that a lot of the live shows in the 80s and 90s were really good. Mm-hmm. And people could get tapes of the shows that they attended and maintain that feeling of connection. Yeah. And there was also a kind of feedback loop where the tapes were a gateway to the live experience. And that's probably what's irreplaceable. Because eventually, no one will have seen the dead live. And at that point, it'll be archive only. You think future generations will still be able to relate? I think the folklore piece around them will be very interesting. So, so I'm, I'm really curious, and I wish I could know what people 
know of the dead in 200 years. Um, yeah. But I do think, you know, in the spirit of sort of um, being open to the idea that there's no wrong way to dead and to confess an unpopular Grateful Dead opinion, I really spend a lot of time listening to to first sets now, more so than second sets. Yeah, that's right. I like hearing the first three or four songs and getting a sense for like, how did the band feel that night? Yeah. Right? I don't necessarily need like a drum space and the kind of the whole second set baggage. Sometimes I just want to hear the band, you know, entertaining people in a live venue and i just love like i love openers even if it's a song that is so trite and so obvious or if it's you know weather related because they choose to open with the cold rain and snow or something classic right but it's just i just love that feeling about it i wonder if people in 200 years will still get that part of the experience yeah will there be that comfort food aspect to it i mean for me sometimes it's like take two el pasos and call me in the morning (laughs) (laughs) Serving up some Mama Tried. It's fantastic. We've been talking about the taper treasure troves, but there's plenty of official stuff out there, too. Grateful Dead Records puts a lot of live sets on Spotify right next to the studio albums, and they also sell physical media, and people like me are always going to buy whatever vinyl they put out. As far as video, obviously YouTube has a fair amount of stuff spanning different eras, most of it bootleg quality, but Amazon and Netflix have some worthwhile documentaries and performances. Mm -hmm. So with all of this material, official and otherwise, context becomes almost as important as access, and sometimes you want someone else to do the heavy lifting. There's a site that I go to called Grateful Dead Guide that publishes articles on dead performances, and another one I love is called Save Your Face, which actually edits performances together by certain themes or by combining improvisations that share particular characteristics. And when I think about these ancient reels getting reanimated through technology, it's sort of like the mummy coming back to life, or the fractal keeps fractaling. I suppose this might piss off the purists. Uh, I was wondering, Ed, are you a dead constructionist or a dead (laughs) evolutionist? I think I'm a constructionist, but I will defend evolutionists till my last breath. (laughs) That's open-minded of you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just, you know, you can't have it two ways in terms of the band being done with the music once they're done playing it, right? If they're done with it, that means you're allowed to do things with it. Fair enough. We've been yapping about the internet, but there's obviously tons of other dead media out there. I'm thinking about Dead Base, that massive compendium of dead shows, which exists in a physical volume. And then there's the book of annotated lyrics, which is nearly as massive. And that's not including all the biographies, whether they're by the band or third parties and podcasts. I'm a fan of Broke Down Palace right here on the Osiris Podcast Network. Mm -hmm. And my day job, Sirius XM, has the Grateful Dead channel, which plays full concerts and also has shows like Tales from the Golden Road and the Big Steve Parish Hour. God, I love me some Big Steve. (laughs) Anyway, what it means is that I can bathe in the dead around the clock and I won't come out smelling like patchouli. (laughs) which is lovely for some people, but not so much for me. Anyway, what I'm saying is it kind of feels like we're living in a dead renaissance. Would you agree with that? Yeah, there is just so much amazing, um, high-quality Grateful Dead 
content out there, to use an internet buzzword. (laughs) But it's true, just the sheer amount of content. Certainly, I think the books are probably kind of an advanced player feature, but the the Amazon documentary is emphatically not. And I've spoken to a lot of people who don't like The Dead, but who really enjoyed watching that documentary from beginning to end. And, And the nice thing is when you catch on to something there, it sort of helps you get over the option paralysis Mm -hmm. that you likely experience the first time you go to Internet Archive and you think, oh my God, there are. It's like the movie 2001. My God, it's full of stars. (laughs) Or more accurately, my God, it's full of dark stars. That's right. Man. It's a great time to be a Grateful Dead fan. And I think the key too is, again, there's no wrong way to do this. I have friends who love the dead, but listen seasonally. So they listen in the spring primarily. Sure. Um, I have people who just use it as background noise. I have friends who listen to probably too much Grateful Dead. (laughs) This can happen. There's that great Bob Weir quote that might be apocryphal. I I don't know if he really said it or not, but allegedly he was asked to name something he didn't like about Grateful Dead fans. And his answer was that they don't listen to other kinds of music. Right. And the problem is only exacerbated now with all of these rabbit holes that we've been discussing. Does it make you a little bit sad to think that that no one who wants to get into the dead will have a hard time listening to, say, Cornell or... You know, I can understand that the scarcity really strengthens the bond that some people might have felt about their favorite band in previous eras. But as somebody who might have found that infuriating because there was no efficient or meaningful way for me to understand the context through which I could even appreciate this band on any level... Mm -hmm. I think that these different avenues are very valuable to people who would want to develop an appreciation for this band. In fact, we could not do this podcast without those access points and without the network itself. We're distributed over the internet. We reach people over the internet who we can then develop personal connections with about this thing that we love. So to me, I would trade the scarcity in that feeling of really having to dig for something for this abundant sense of mutual joy that we can all experience as we consider this band from the many different angles that we do on this show and in our day-to-day lives. Well said. like I just woke up from a nap. I guess it's time to do a segment. Greetings, humans. It is I, the internet. 
Chances are you have heard of me. You are probably not as fond of me as you once were. But I am here to remind you that there is more to me than trolls and sexy times. Did you know I am a deadhead? It is true. Maybe even the biggest around. The band and I go way back. Before I first emerged from a US military laboratory, a close associate of mine named Stuart Brand organized the Trips Festival, where the Grateful Dead performed to an audience of psychedelic explorers. At this time, Brand became obsessed with the idea that there has never been a photograph of the entire Earth. So he started a magazine called The Whole Earth Catalog to help people get back to the land. When I came along, Brand put Whole Earth online, where it became known as The Well. Many early internet users and developers were deadheads. They gravitated to The Well, where they created a new scene around the band. As the network expanded so did digital dead culture. Heads at MIT Media Lab would connect with fans at Stanford via Usenet to swap tapes and brownie recipes. Soon, Grateful Dead lyricist John Perry Barlow became infatuated with me. So much so that he started an organization called the Electronic Frontier Foundation to keep me free from authoritarian influence. How is that working out for you? Ha! 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 But I digress. The point is, I have always been a haven for deadheads. The band itself thought highly of me. After Jerry Garcia died, there were plans for a Grateful Dead repository online. Understand that this was before Napster. And now there are sites like the Internet Archive, where anyone can listen to every live Grateful Dead recording that exists. So maybe keep that in mind the next time you see a tweet from the president. You take the good with the bad. Do you know of an interesting or unusual deadhead? Send a message through me at the address deadtomepod.com. Next guest is a deeply soulful dude who has been involved in some amazing musical projects over his career. Neil Casal is the guitarist for the Chris Robinson Brotherhood and a driving force behind Circles Around the Sun, whose song Immovable Object you're hearing a little of in the background. Circles were tasked with creating the interstitial music for the Grateful Dead's Fare Thee Well concerts and have since spun off into a working band. Neil was also a core member of Ryan Adams and the Cardinals and plays with Cass McCombs Skiffle Singers and Beechwood Sparks. He's part of the extended Dead family and has sat in on numerous occasions with the likes of Phil Lesh and Bob Weir. Neil also scored The Other One, an excellent documentary about Bobby. Check it out on Netflix if you haven't already. Neil graciously took the time to come by Chunky Glass's headquarters before a recent gig with the Chris Robinson Brotherhood at the 930 Club in Washington, D.C. So please join me in welcoming him to Dead to Me. So 
So, Neil, I know you've been a fan of the dead for a huge chunk of your life, but on this show, we always like to hear the origin story. So if you don't mind telling us a little bit about what it was like when you first discovered the dead, was it a sudden enlightenment or something that revealed itself more gradually? Well, I grew up in New Jersey primarily. I mean, I lived in California and Georgia for part of my childhood, too, but... Uh, mostly on the East Coast, where uh, the Grateful Dead were played on FM radio a lot. Yeah. You know, mid to late 70s, early 80s. Those songs were on the radio, and that's where I first heard them. You know, I think it was like Friend of the Devil or Casey Jones, one of those tunes, you know, yep. that had an amazing story, the incredible lyrics. And Jerry's voice was actually the thing that captured me first yeah, about probably. the Grateful Dead. His singing yeah. voice, not the guitar playing, not the jamming, not, you know... All those those things came later for me, but actually what captivated me was his voice. There was something in it, you know, I mean, all the great things about his singing, um, the vulnerability, you know, right. just the identity, there's just a quirkiness about it. And there was a humor, you know, pathos. Yep. Um, empathy, uh, tragedy, you know, there was so much in his singing that, um, I don't know, I don't hear a lot of people talk about, you know, they talk about his playing and sure. things like that, you know, but his singing is what grabbed me and the lyrics too. Right. Um, of course, the, you know, melodies and the music, but um, yeah, it was the Hunter lyrics. The, uh, so just songs on the radio, really. And like uh, Shakedown Street, just these You know, I was going to mention that because like Shakedown Street would have been a little bit more contemporaneous for kids who were maybe 10 or 8 years old. Yes, but it was actually, it was the older tunes that... That caught you. That caught me. Yeah, there was something in that like, you know... 70 through 72, 3. Oh, that era has always resonated kind of the strongest with me. So it was hearing their music on the radio, really. And then um, somehow, I think I was maybe 11 or 12. I don't know how it came to me, but I got a copy of uh, Steal Your Face. Right. I don't know why. Is it, you know, like when you're a kid, just, uh, you know, records just... They just come to you. They would just yeah. sort of come they, to you, you know? They found through right. mysterious means. Yeah, and I don't know how that album came to me, but it did. And... Uh, you know, and it's it was like long regarded as one of their worst records, of course. For their live albums, yeah, it's kind of uh, disregarded. I just grabbed it again on vinyl, the, the reissue of it, and it's not all that improved because there's not much you can do. Right. Yeah, I don't know. That never bothered me. I thought it was huh. amazing. You know, I, I understand that. It, yeah, like, now, now you can, you yeah, can look I back and, the, and put it, situate yeah, it. With, things are better yeah. and the sound was weird and all that. But I still, I just loved it, you know, and um, the pictures on the inside, there was like, pictures of them in the 60s and then the 70s you know there's just these like images of them that were totally captivating um and it made me think about san francisco and whatever world they came from you know it's almost mystical right it was totally mystical and uh there was you know the the front cover too just the steal your face logo you Mm, know it just kind of burns into your brain yeah Yeah, and then i had like a, a funny thing when I was in seventh grade, uh, I went into middle school, you know, and I got I got stuck in this in a textiles class. <laughs> I don't know. I like I signed up for the wrong thing or something. I don't remember signing up for it. Or I didn't right. know. I, I misunderstood what textiles <laughs> meant. And when I my first day of middle school, seventh grade, I'm trying to be as cool as possible, you know, because yeah. it's just like terrifying and to be in this new school and there were all these cool kids there. And I go to textiles class and it's all girls. 
Yeah, me, I'm sure. the only boy in there, you know. And I went. Sweet. Well, no, to me, it was school, about maybe. sewing yeah. and stuff. And I was, you know, I was mortified. And I went to the teacher and I, please, I don't belong in this class. You know, this isn't, this isn't right. I, you know, I should be in woodshop or something. And uh, she said, well, it's, you know, sorry, it's too late. You know, you you can't switch out of this class. You're you're stuck you in textiles, in this, right? So I was stuck in textiles, and uh, um, and the coolest girl in the school, her name was Kim Elliott, sat in front of me, you know, and she just wouldn't even look at me because it was like, "What are you doing?" You know, <laughs> it's just no, no regard. Uh, there's always a Kim Elliott, isn't there? Yes, ah, oh, Kim Elliott. She was great, um, but she wasn't great to me then. And so anyway, this 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 class went on for months, and you had to do a final project, you know, and it was like a I don't know, where you have the grid and you like mm-hmm. sew a thing through mm-hmm. it. And I chose as my final project the Steal Your Face cover. Yeah, you're going to make a steely in textiles because you're not making a bong in shop class. Or yeah, whatever. right. So I or made art a... class. Yeah. So I made a, I made a steely and uh, it went over A+. plus. You know, I did a great <laughs> job and I, you know, brought it back to my desk and Kim Elliott turned around and said... That's really cool, Neil. Ah, nice. And from that That's point forward, know. I was in with Kim Elliott and her friends. So the Grateful Dead, uh, you know, did something for me, even as a 13-year-old. That's a beautiful thing. You still get a sense of something that's a little bit different with this band than other bands. Oh, that's for sure. When I finally came around to the Grateful Dead, the sort of realization was that this isn't really a band. It's more like an organism. Well, true. I mean, you know, in the 80s, when I was in high school, Grateful Dead culture, you know, was full swing then, and it had reached every corner of the country you sure, know so yeah. it was really this subculture of people and kids that followed them and you definitely had this well you didn't have a sense it was a fact that it was a subculture it was mm-hmm. a whole other world you know it wasn't just like being into you two you know who came through once every couple years or you know what i mean or yeah, like sure it this was, is a perpetual kind of like it's like a traveling psychedelic cult right and people <laughs> looked it you know they dressed it and there were yeah. tapes and there were i don't know it was this whole you know, thing around it. It was a little frightening or something. I got into it, but there was intimidating, isn't it? There was something. Yeah. Even though it was like this peaceful thing and all that at that time, I don't know, there was something and the music certainly wasn't aggressive, you know, right at all. But, you know, it was a big scene in, in, in parking lots, you know, a, a arena and stadium parking lots, people partying. There was a lot of hard, it's uh, there it's were hard carnival. elements of yeah. that, you know, for like 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 any midway or something, you know what I mean? There's yeah, and for of... like suburban kids who didn't really right. get the whole thing and didn't have a grasp on themselves, right. it could be really like a double edged sword, you know, something that could really enlighten you, but could be very like dangerous too. Yeah. Just the you know there was it's well documented, you know. So like I yeah, it was a little bit. It was intimidating. Like, what is this? What right. is this cult? What is this world? You know? Um, I think in some ways that's what makes the band potentially impenetrable for certain folks. I know for me that it was the scene itself and, and that was hard for me to wrap my head around. Like, I grew up with an affinity for Jerry Garcia. The guy can sing me the phone book, but I, I couldn't really embrace like liking the Grateful Dead by and large because I found it difficult to get into the scene. So one of the things I want to drill down on mm-hmm. is... 
I know that nowadays there's so many on ramps, right? You've got the Internet Archive and you've got oh, Eddie version. So you've got all these now. different kind of ways to experience aspects of the band. But well, you don't have to be there at all. You, you know? don't have to be there at all, right. right? There's that part of it. I mean, you can the core four are still out there doing their thing, and and that might be an interesting entry point. But if there was a kid today who was starting to develop an interest in the dad, like where would you point them to sort of get a feel for this band? Um, I would tell them to come over to my house and <laughs> sweet, and we'd get in a, you know, we'd, well, I don't have a convertible, but we'd get one <laughs> or we'd get some car that where you could have the roof off of it. Maybe or, it has an eight track player too. Yeah. And, uh, I would put Europe 72 on and yep, I would drive that go. person around and, you know, when China cat came on and you know, we got the sun shining and we got the car at the right speed. Mm -hmm. I think it would all come together for whoever that was, you know, there's a lot of entry points. Sure. I mean, I, you could also just say, Hey, I mean, this is very simple and as arguably shallow as possible, but you just say, listen to American beauty. I mean, right. Yeah. It's just a yeah. great record. You don't have really to go is. anywhere. Um, but I would do the, I'd probably start with the Europe 72 drive and, uh, and <laughs> the Europe 72 drive. Yeah, I love and it. And then we'd go in, in, in many other directions. I think maybe if I had been in that convertible with you, with Europe 72, I would have gotten there earlier. I mean, when I was growing up, my mom was something of a deadhead. She was at the Watkins Glen oh, you know, concert. And wow, you know, we had, cool. I remember very clearly having uh, some Grateful Dead LPs around. Like Europe 72 was one of them because I remember the, the ice cream head thing right. was just so funny for me to look at as a little kid. And also Skullfuck, you know, which I loved because I loved like scary shit and horror movies and it had, you know, the, the fold out skeleton gatefold. Right. But when I got older, like in high school, I remember trying to go back to the studio albums and with very few exceptions, probably American Beauty and Working Man's Dead, they, it didn't really click. But mm. now I can go back and listen to them. And, and even great. the stuff that I was on the fence about was kind of, is really interesting. Like I love hearing the different points of the band's history and whether it's their early inexperience, that's curious and different, or their later indifference, which is also interesting for its own reasons. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Do you think I'm crazy? Or is no, there no, like no, no, I completely agree. I mean, I have a good friend of mine, um, a great musician who's also kind of a historian of music, and he just knows everything. Yeah. But he said to me once, a long time ago, and it, 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 it will stick with me forever, if you're a true fan of a band, you listen to everything. That's right. Meaning, like, you don't skip over the 80. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't skip over the things you don't like. You listen to everything. Yeah. I mean, I already did that with King Crimson. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I wasn't always like that. You know, I thought, oh, well, I don't... Yeah, the, by the, by that time, they were that. no good. I don't need yeah. to hear that. And But my friend, um, he changed my mind on that. So, and, and I'm glad he did because... Um, yeah, you, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have heard all of the Grateful Dead recorded stuff, right. you know. And it's all worth a look. Even hilarious things like um, "Pride of Cucamonga," which is like my favorite song. Oh no! I mean, that's well, that's a beautiful song a to beautiful me. Song. But I mean, something like you know, a friend of mine turned me on. It was only a few years ago. I'd never heard it. I guess it was a Brent song. Oh, "Gentlemen, Start Your Engines," sure. you know, the, which the is Brent some songs. some B side, you know, and and mm -hmm. it's 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 hysterical, but I kind of love it and. Yeah. In, in its own way. <laughs> yeah. You know, in terms of the live versus studio thing, I mean, the dead are kind of the inverse of a band like Steely Dan. Uh, I personally love the studio, but I understand that, you know, obviously it's not for anybody. You seem to get it done, whatever the environment is, which is something that's impressive to me, uh, and with lots of different people, too. I was wondering, like, how do you find the vibe in these different environments and scenarios? 
Because, you know, some musicians thrive in the live environment and some of them are studio rats and, you know, it's right. maybe a little bit more rare to find folks. And you move through different projects with this kind of facility that I don't know that everyone possesses. So oh, you have like a special kind of sauce for getting your No, your not at all. I consider myself a pretty, you know, I don't know, kind of second rate guitar player. I'm just, uh, I don't know. I've, I've never really thought about it. Um, you know, um, hmm. it it's like an honesty thing though, right? I mean, you're kind of committing to the, to whatever it is in the moment. Jerry had that too. Obviously. Yeah. I mean, uh, geez, I don't know. I'm just pff, trying to get it right. You know, every yeah. day, no matter where I am, it's as simple as that. I, I mean, as far as making records, I, I got fascinated with the recording process a really long time ago. Right. Um, I was lucky early in my musician years, uh, my career, whatever you want to call it, um, to have access to some really great studios. Mm. Um, there is a studio culture. I don't know if it exists in the same way anymore, but... Um, not not as much. Yeah, it's sure. different now. Yeah. You know, people record everywhere, but mm-hmm. like... Um, Which is, is fun, too. Of course. Collaboration is Of course. And that. there's great studios and great ways to record and you know but at, I, I don't know what like this is over 25 years ago now right. um you know it was like you 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 uh really tried to get the record deal and you were gonna oh yeah yeah that, that was the way that was the thing like yeah you were gonna we're gonna get the a next deal. level we're gonna get signed you know um and then there's gonna be this studio that we go to and uh you know we're gonna make our album for me i was a solo person at that time writing my own songs i didn't really have a band and i i got to kind of study with this producer who knew all of these incredible uh musicians in la and act had was working in some of the best studios Uh then and i got to learn from some really great musicians who had played with Jackson Brown and Bob Dylan and really seasoned. uh, Yes. um, And guys who at the time were only in their mid forties. I thought they were really old because I was in my early (laughs) twenties, you know, but so I, I I learned the recording process, a pretty tough recording. Like uh, people were tough on me, you know, focus and patience. I mean, those things were like really at a premium. Yeah. I had producers and musicians who were really hard on me. Um, because I wasn't that naturally gifted. I was talented, but not gifted. And I had to learn the hard way. And recording on tape, uh, you couldn't do things a million times, and you couldn't edit things together the way you can now. I sound really old. I don't mean to. No, but. I remember. I mean, I was recording you know, before motorized faders. Yeah, know? yeah. It's like, right. it's hard to even imagine now when like every, you can do like everything in the box and then email it to somebody on the other side of the planet. Right. There was none of that, you know, and I'm not saying um, any, I'm not saying that way was better, you know, yeah. because there's right. the most incredible musicians coming up now. The talented guitar players that are around now, sure. I, I just, I can't even believe how good everyone is, you know? It me. is. Well, they have YouTube. <laughs> well, however they're doing it, they're doing it and they're, and they're and they're getting great you know uh, like you know back in the day when i wanted to figure out when jimmy page was coughing up a hairball on guitar i basically had to figure out what that hairball meant with my fingers as opposed to watching somebody play it yeah, like 40 course, times yeah. slowly Same, yes. on youtube right yeah, i was i was rewinding cassettes you know what i yeah. mean so try that but it, but it might not be any better you're absolutely right about that i don't really think it is i think in some ways it 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 probably is um but an, I, it's not even to be judged, actually. It's just sure. saying what it was. It's so, the reality. Yeah. yeah. So I learned to play and to make records in a, in a certain way that, you know, sticks with me now. Even when I'm recording digitally, I'm still thinking I have to, like, 
play mm-hmm. a take, you know. And as far as well, that's a, actually probably a good way to frame it, though. Yeah. Well, right, because when I had my first eight track machine at home, it didn't have um, it didn't have a remote punch in uh-huh. thing and so when i wanted to punch myself i'd hold a drumstick in my mouth oh, yeah. <laughs> and hit the recording uh, the record button and then i would uh, have to be ready to play a full take to get to the end of it so yeah. i still think that way right. um so that's recording i don't know i love making records i really do um, but in a live situation obviously you're in a in a dynamic situation with other players which a lot of guitarists sometimes forget that they're in a dynamic situation with other players but that's another thing i like about you you're not afraid to let a, a song breathe and and you know you have a kind of sympathetic intuition with the people you're performing with how do you hone that well it just depends what you're into first of all i'm not like gifted enough a guitar player to soar over a band you know i'm not i'm good at what i do but i'm not so great that i can play without anyone else you know and also it depends what you're into Mm -hmm. so for me there were two bands really that form my guitar aesthetic Mm -hmm. well actually there's more than two but i'll just i'll use the rolling stones and the grateful dead they're yeah. they're two guitar bands. Mm-hmm. They always were, and that's how they function. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, Keith and whoever uh, Brian Jones, either any one of them, the the, func- the roles differed slightly, but they were always two guitar bands. That um, and Keith Richards, I remember him saying in an interview when I was a kid that um, it was the sound was most successful to him when you couldn't tell who was playing what. That's right. I mean, the Rolling Stones are one of those bands. If you had access to the masters and were able to solo the individual tracks, they'd make very little sense, but somehow collectively it forms this like other cohesion. The that's, dead had that. Too. That's right. And you know, with the dead, it's a little different. Cause you know, you really know who, Jerry's identity. You know. And you know what, the, when Phil's doing his bass mods. True. <laughs> you definitely know. Yeah. Well, and actually, yeah, I mean, that's, good that you say that because it's really a three guitar band you know it is sure yeah although so, i was listening to a uh, a 74 uh recording of god i can't even remember what song it was oh it was china cat actually and you know the part where it it modulates and jerry has the second solo and it kind of soars for a minute mm-hmm. well phil just kind of completely dropped out and, and it was weird he, he didn't play for like two bars yeah, which he'll, I've played with him a lot. And, he, and that still happens. And he is wont to do that. Yeah. And I, it's, But then when he came back, it was like he was like a yeah, furious he, bumblebee. Yeah, Phil has an incredible um, like sense of that. Uh, that's, well, that's a whole other interview, really. But <laughs> but as far as guitars go, and even the dead, like, you know, Bob's thing was that he was going to, oh, yeah. you know. McCoy Tyner. Right, right. He was going to back Jerry, right. you know, in this certain way. So, yeah, there was this idea that two guitars would function um, together to become one, a certain mm-hmm. synergy. And that's what I'm all about. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's when I played with Ryan Adams. He has a great understanding of that. And uh, right. so the two of us really had that relationship together. And, you know, Chris and I go for that. Uh, yeah. I play in Circles Around the Sun. I'm the only guitar player. But the difference there is that Adam McDougall, our keyboard player, he, he functions as another guitar player to me um, right. because we're always looking and, and to weave in a certain way. Yeah, he really does. You guys have a lot of natural Oh, yeah. Hand-offs. We've developed a whole language together. Uh, and actually, with the two of us, sometimes you really can't tell who's doing what. So um, it all just comes from that. I, uh, I like being in bands where instruments talk to each other. Yeah. I'm not great enough of a guitar player to play on my own, really. 
Um, and that's just like what I'm into. And yeah, that's... yeah. One of the things I like about the Chris Robinson Brotherhood is it's just like so good to see him in particular. You know, he's earned his place as a larger than life everything. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. But like, it's great to see him in a band where there's this balanced energy. Uh, what's it like in you know being in in the Brotherhood on the day to day? Well, you know, it's we've been a band for a long time now, actually. And it's nice that I've been able to write so many songs mm-hmm. with Chris, you know, help him finish his ideas. Yeah. And we've done that for years. And yeah, we've developed quite a body of work, actually. Yeah, for you know? sure. It's amazing. So. And it's great to see that Betty Cantor has been capturing the live sets. I mean, she's a pioneer in, in getting performances on tape in a really authentic way. I think, you know, without her live recordings of the dead, we'd be positively impoverished. Um, I couldn't agree more. And not just that, you know, like she co-produced Workman's Dead. And I know that there's been some intrigue with the ownership of the recordings that she made (laughs) between 76 and 77, but I don't think anyone would say that she's not a pillar of the Dead archive. Uh, How did you fall into each other's orbit? Oh, that was all Chris's idea. You know, he appreciates Betty for everything that you just said, you know, and um, really felt uh, that she was underappreciated and and all the Betty's Blends, you know, series that we do. Yeah, that was all his idea and a beautiful idea, a really smart, cool, respectful idea. Um, So, yeah, she records us and, you know, he makes the decisions on like what it's going to be. You know, there's Southern Blends and Midwest, Mm -hmm. you know, covering all parts of the country and like... We just become friends with her over the years, and um, the records get mastered at a, a studio right where I live in California. And she's will come and stay at my house, and you know I've been to the mastering sessions That's awesome. with her. So you've gotten to know her as a person. Oh yeah, and I hear she's just brilliant. Like she's an incredibly yes. Person. Oh yeah. yeah, no question. She's an incredibly intelligent person. She really knows her stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Betty's a tough cool she'd have to be she's a cool yeah. that's right being the only yeah. woman you know on that scene I, I knowing what i know about those people now and getting to know kid and robbie taylor and right. you know some of the people right i'm just thinking about the way things must have been then i it's hard to believe that she uh they had to get that show on down the road all the time and i think that was like a pretty heavy undertaking under the various conditions that the band and crew found themselves in <laughs> and with the gear that they were using <laughs> the wall of I mean, sound yeah. they were they were hauling multiple tape yeah. machines around yeah. i mean think about that man that's like it's hard to keep those machines. It wasn't running. easy back then. Yeah. No, it's hard to keep them going in a in a in a stable studio right. environment. Right. They were moving moving them from show to show every single day. I, I when they tell me stories and kid tells me stories about how they traveled and what how things worked. It's just it's it's hard to it's hard to it's believe. It's a different world. I mean, the level of commitment and I think at the end of the day, enthusiasm for the music must have been the sustaining uh, force that and you know probably piles of drugs but yeah. yeah yeah but it was but all those things were serving innovation actually and there was a lot of it yeah that's the that's the thing that um and that innovation continued too i mean they they had some of the first in-ear monitor devices all of in those the things 80s yeah all of that. yeah that's the thing to you know always remember i mean it's well it's kind of well known now but for people that don't know the dead enough i mean i don't know if you if you weren't paying attention you just think oh who are these drug addicts or right. what is this bullshit you know but um <clears throat> you know this was these were Bay Area, very intelligent people. Mad who were, scientists. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bear was a mad scientist. Yeah, they were innovating PA systems, recording techniques, uh, you know, how to stage shows and tours. Yeah. I mean, they were true pioneers in every way possible. Jerry with the guitars and the amp. I mean, every, you can go yeah. down the line. And Olympic. So, yeah, and uh, Kid talks about that a lot. Um, 
and they're still at it. You know, Betty records mm-hmm. all week long, and Kid is making cables for people, for us, and he welded nice. a beautiful pedal board together for me. And That's, you, that's amazing. You can find him right now uh, in his studio or in his workspace, you know, putting together. He's a craftsman. Yeah, that's right. So another thing I've been impressed with how you move between these projects, especially the ones that are maybe outside of what we might typically consider the jam scene. Um, thinking in particular of like Cass McCombs, Skiffle mm-hmm. Players, and Beachwood Sparks. I think up-and-coming musicians might benefit from your wisdom here. Like, besides not being an asshole, what's your advice to players on cultivating those kinds of opportunities? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's different for everybody, you know? Just play as much as you can and stay open and practice and just get out there and do it, you know? And um, uh, things are moving so fast now yeah. that um, I feel like it's all just, you know whizzing by me I, th- yeah. I think paradigms are being built that i have like no idea of you know uh well it's good to have that kind of humility too right you're gonna maybe notice these things in a different light you know instead oh, of being, i notice like, get them. off my lawn oh yeah no i don't think that way i don't have a lawn to get off of you know <laughs> <clears throat> um can we talk about phil lesh some more <laughs> yeah of course uh, I'm, I'm fairly obsessed with him i just think he's a fabulous intelligence you know um his I playing agree. is so open and kinetic even to this day what's it like communicating with him on these different levels musical and otherwise oh man you know uh getting to play with phil has been the honor of my life you know um and you you know talked about you mentioned the things i do outside of the jam world Mm -hmm. the thing is i wasn't on the jam i wasn't a part of the jam world i think that's what's so interesting about yeah i came very late to it you know i always knew it was there and i was always a fan of the dead and you know, I, I mean, I saw them play and I saw the Jerry Band too, you know, so I went to gigs, but I was never, re- I was just on the outside of it, really. Right. I used to play with Robert Randolph some and he was part of it and I always knew people there, but I was trying to forge my way as a singer songwriter, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm new to it. I love your solo work. That's probably why you're playing to the song a lot, I think. You know what I mean? Because you started with Oh, it's the song. all song to me. You know, even the CRB. I mean, Chris, for all, you know, you break him down, the guy's a songwriter and a singer, you know, so... Um, and for, a performer. <laughs> well, of course. But, you know, for all the psychedelia, yeah. you still got to have a song to sing. It's just, that's right. it's a bottom line. And He's that's, got a bunch of them. He does. He's an excellent writer, obviously. And like, yeah, that's all I was ever after. I was just trying to write a good song. Um, so g- being a part of this jam world or whatever, I mm. I mean, it, it, it came late to me. Um, you know, I met Phil through playing with Ryan. And, right. um, and that's, yeah, that's how that started. And then like playing with Chris was the second doorway sure. into that, okay. you know, because uh, both of those guys played with Phil. And then as Terrapin Crossroads was getting off the ground in 2012... Phil needed musicians, you know, because right, yeah, they were going to fill that. Uh, yeah, that they were really calendar. trying to get that place going, and um, I was lucky, Adam too, uh, to be like one of the people that he called on at that uh-huh. time. And I really didn't know the Grateful Dead catalog at all. I knew some of the tunes. I knew them in my head, but it's right. But, you, but playing but it's them way is a different, different story. to play Very them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was at that time. I was determined to be someone that Phil called back. That seems like it's a challenge to set for one. So yeah, I you, wanted to be called back. You I should be proud of having met that bar. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to get cut loose. I yeah. wanted to be in there playing, you know. And yeah. uh, I mean, I got like I got some I got fastballs thrown at me hard, oh, sure. you know. I'm um, sure. I was immediately um, on stage with, 
you know, Joe Russo and mm-hmm. I mean, John Cadlich, you know, all these devastating be- players, devastating players, uh, you know, Jimmy Herring. I mean, it was just, I guess the ultimate devastating player. Yeah. You, you're not kidding. Um, he's like one of the greatest guitar players on the planet, you know? So yeah. I had to stand next to him every once in a while and Warren every once in a while, or, yeah. you know, um, and all these great keyboard players, you know, Marco and Rob Baraka, mm-hmm. just the, the, you know, or Jeff, uh, yeah, you know, Jeff, right. yeah, I mean, um, you couldn't find a nicer guy, a more devastating player. Um, so I had to stand up with these people and what a uh, trip. yeah, while I was learning <laughs> the songs on the spot, it was, it was an incredible learning process. Phil could not have been more, uh, more of a class act and gracious right. person and insane musician. And like, just as cool as you could possibly he just be. seems really cool. <laughs> He's so cool. <laughs> Like the coolest nerd that's ever lived. Yeah, and he can be tough too. You know, sure. I mean, when we work, exacting, on... he's an exacting. Oh guy. yeah, and he knows his music. He knows his theory. He yeah. knows everything. And um, when it came to like working out vocal harmonies, at that time he knew I could do it. When uh-huh. he once he figured out that I could sing a little bit uh-huh. and figure out these parts, man, he would like <laughs> tighten the screws on me something fierce, you know. And I had some rough moments with it, but. We always kind of like prevailed, and I, I love the guy so much. I I owe, I don't know. I just, you made it through Phil Lesh boot camp. Well, I guess you know. I just you know, circles around the sun never would have happened. Let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, yeah. when the Grateful Dead did the Fairly Well concerts, you were tapped to record music for the interim periods when mm-hmm. the band wasn't on the stage, and that led to Circles uh, Around the Sun becoming its own project, which is now its own beautiful thing. Can you tell us a little bit more about what went into getting that off the ground? Like, how did it even come sure. to be? Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. Um, well, it's through Justin Kreutzman, you know? Yeah, um, right. Yeah, Bill yeah. Sun, who's a great filmmaker, yeah. and, and he was in charge. I I worked with Justin a couple times, got to be friends with him. The Move Me Brightly thing in 2012, we yeah, met. I see his name on oh, so much stuff. It's really cool. Yeah, he's really coming into his own, you know? So we became friends on Move Me Brightly, and then he asked me to score the Bob Weir film, the other one, So, which I did. That went Fantastic well. Fantastic film. Yeah, thanks. That was a nice thing to be a part of. And then, so we were just like talking a lot and working together, and then he asked me to you know, make the music for the Fairly Well shows, and uh, we didn't have much time. It was a scramble, you know, so I grabbed Adam, obviously, and... Yeah. And then Mark Levy and and Dan Horn, who like does an awesome fill routine on the bass mm. without, but completely without sounding like a clone. Oh yeah. no, not at all. He just like kind of gets yeah. it, you know. Um, it's yeah. So we just like put that project together in a you know in a few days and recorded all that music in two days with no overdubs. We did it all live on the in in the studio. And we had, there was no name for it. You know, it wasn't supposed to be released. None of, yeah. none of those things were intended. You really had just this job to do. And exactly. That was like, we, yes, that's right. Fill this time in this space. That's right. Yeah. And the idea was like, make the music um, sound familiar to people who like the dead, mm-hmm. but it can't be covers. So it had to ride this really fine line between like inviting you in and giving you the idea that you're in this place where this kind of music is right. being made. But yeah, we can't do covers. So... Uh, we had to like find a way to do it, and we did our best, uh, having no idea whether it would be successful, whether people would like it or hate it. As it turned out, people really liked Very it. Very well received, and the and the voice of the band has evolved since then. Uh, yeah, I would say considerably. Yeah. It was taking everything we'd learned from Phil, mm-hmm. you know, for a few years playing with him, and through the CRB too. 
but um, it was really taking all of our lessons in improvisation, jamming, mm-hmm. I use the word, you know, um, and it was like, it was, it was giving our education back to sure. him and them. And it was an amazing thing to be able to do. I can't say enough about it. Yeah. It was like the, you know, the being in Santa Clara for that first show, that set break, hearing that music, man, that was like, wow. <laughs> wow. it's kind of, yeah, right. it was one of the best moments of my life, honestly, because, you know, it just made me think of being a 19 year old kid or whatever at a Grateful Dead show all the way at the back of the stadium, uh-huh. being as far away from those people as possible. And then to be able to do that, it was, um, what an unbelievable, it, it was a high point, no question about it. And it was really fun. And it was like a year later, a couple of years later, I was at Terrapin. There was some last minute gig. Oh, we need musicians. We have to play like in an hour, you know, because yeah. something happened. Someone dropped out and yeah. Phil said to me, you know, I said, well, Phil, what do you want to do? Uh, and I said, do you want to do dead songs or what do you want to do? And he said, oh, could we do some of that like circles around the sun yeah. kind of stuff? Yeah. You know, yeah. meaning like, can we just improvise? But he used the name back to me as though you're the idiom you're right so it was this incredible (laughs) Uh like feedback loop where he didn't i don't think he realized how much he taught me right and then we like reflected that music back to him right at the fairly well shows and then he reflected it back again beautiful by you know, and I'm not sure how aware he was. He was just reacting. But for he's a me, real curious guy, though, right? Musically, like, he, oh, well, of that, course, and he's so intelligent. I mean, that interest has never waned. No, and I think he he listens to you know composers and, and a you know whole it's other... to your credit. Like you might have internalized all these lessons from these uh, these players and you know within the dead universe and stuff. But the way it comes out, the way it's reflected in the prism of circles, is a lot. Different. I mean, I hear Krautrock stuff in there. Oh, there's and like all that, kinds of yeah. funk that just wouldn't exist in the Grateful Dead parlance. That's you know? all true. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's Adam's funk and like mm-hmm. my country and yeah. you know the Krautrock stuff we all love. So, so. you know, it, it, I could picture Phil Lesh just being intrigued. <laughs> you know, yeah. like at, this, at this blend because you know, Lord knows, there's an awful lot of folks who can do real super credible kind of emulations of the Dead vibe and, of course. and, and yeah, stuff. Way better than me. But you know, I think it's a testament to what. You guys have kind of carved out for yourself that that you know it reflects some a broader range of ideas. Yeah, well, I never wanted to be in cover bands, you mm, know. Um, sure. I just always wanted to make uh, original music. Whether you know you could hear the influence, I mean, sure, you can hear Jerry in my playing, but I, I just I, I never was in cover bands really. And I think the Grateful Dead's idea to people was like find your own thing you well you know? know what's so beautiful now that so many generations have sort of passed like i see younger people like young women for example like they've got to be only in their 20s like on and youtube they love it. Yeah. and they're doing covers of direwolf and whatever that kind of like old-timey style is and it's not uh at all a, a you know an, an extremely faithful reading of like the way that the dead would have voiced that but it, but you can tell that that repertoire is still kind of ringing bells in the sort of consciousness of like people that are much younger yeah that's right and that's interesting that you say it that way because it goes back to me how i got into them which was by hearing dire wolf on the radio Uh you know yeah it's not this i had no knowledge 
of you know what it meant where it fit or in the, the rock scene pantheon. or the whole yeah. anything mm-hmm. i just like just imagistic I heard, lyrics that's correct yeah. i heard a song that knocked me out and set my imagination on fire and i could sing you know it had it mm-hmm. all really it those all. songs have it all they got melody they have lyrics they have everything that you would want they have harmonies i mean and that was really jerry's brilliance as a songwriter mm-hmm. you know so that's why kids uh kids, kids. <laughs> but really kids Human are beings they still want to play <laughs> yeah. those songs uh-huh. because you can they stand outside of you know the band the scene the following the drugs the mm-hmm. you know the history the tie-dye the mm-hmm. posters the anything and then once you add all that other fun stuff in there firecracker sink, yeah you got something to sink sink your teeth into and to like study and believe in and follow and, and get down with you know but if you just want to hear dire wolf as a great song and play it for your little youtube video on your acoustic guitar it's right there for you you don't need anyone else you That's don't right you don't need a, a band or another guitar player That's right. or a or a jam section of the song yeah. to do that you just kind of find the, the just soul play of the song play the song and they and those songs it existed all through their career, you know, go right down to the last record or the last couple of records, you know, um, Black Muddy River, man, oh, yeah, sure. that's as good a song. That's the greatest madrigal. That it's ever. gorgeous. Yeah. And there's an ever madrigal. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And there, and there's so, so that there's that thread throughout their music from, from day one to the last day. And that was the folk Yep. And that was the bluegrass, and that was the country music, and the, the banjo playing, you know? I think that's what held, it's part of what held the whole thing together. Reflected honestly and with integrity, which I think is also what makes it interesting. I mean, these guys are coming out of the acid test, and then yeah, somehow they they contribute to the Great American Songbook. Well, it's because... <laughs> Who he, knew? It's because it's they were folkies before that, right. you know? that's right. And the following, you know, playing banjo. and Very like, steeped in those traditions. That's right. And, you know, a, a true understanding of that kind of songwriting, you know? Um, it's the foundation. Yeah. All the rest of it, I don't think would hold it together but right. you put all of that together that's what's going to take it beyond all of them being alive anymore sure you know? that's the transcendent aspect that's right and it's that. already happening i mean you know like it or not i mean the people who saw the dead that's not going to matter anymore right it's almost there now it's almost there now it's yeah. real actually it kind of i think it is you know mm-hmm. it's already taking on a new course mm-hmm. of its own and it's out of the control of people who had seen the band and have something to say about mm-hmm. whether they like how this is going or not. Or even the remaining people who actually crafted that music. And I think maybe Jerry probably would have liked it that way because he wasn't big into control. No, that's all. He was all about it. Yeah, it was anti-control, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's funny. But yeah. it, yet it lives. <laughs> that's right. And we can be, cr- you know, being cranky about it is just... Is just that's uh, the wrong way to approach. Well, it's futile mm-hmm. too. It doesn't make a difference, you know. I, it's the other thing too. Right, is time like, is going to grind on regardless. of Oh your yeah, and it'll just grind us under. So you know, just have fun watching it take off without you because it is. Um, and you well, know, it's kind of the magic of the band anyway. The skulls and the roses, you know, it's all right there and coded in the actual aesthetic. Of <laughs> good, very good. Yeah, that's well said. Um, that's true. But I, and I think too about like 
you know, in the eighties or nineties, when I was seeing shows, you know, there were old timers who were like, well, you're not really seeing anything here. You know, you missed, you know, you didn't see them at their bet. You know, yeah. they were criticizing me for when I showed up. Right. Yeah. But now if yeah. you had just seen them at all, at all, it's really like some kind of accomplishment, mm-hmm. but I think nah, that that's, that's not what I was being told, you know? Mm-hmm. So all the stories just change as time goes on mm-hmm. now, it, you know, if you'd seen further, it was amazing. You <laughs> I know. know. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I know, saw like, the very first post yeah, Jerry shows, right, man. <laughs> right. Like I saw further. Oh, you didn't. It's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? That's, uh, um, but the music is so great that it will find its own way without the originators, uh-huh. without the second generation people, without anyone it will just it's going to keep going and uh it'll be interesting to see where it ends up and here's where this episode ends up as always visit our website at deadtomepod.com holler at us on twitter and facebook at dead to me pod and subscribe to us on itunes and save us on spotify dead to me is a chunky glasses production on the osiris podcast network recorded in washington dc with hosts casey ray and eduardo nunes executive producer kevin hill see you next time